There's a cliché at events like this to say, our next speaker needs no introduction, at which point you then go and give an introduction. But if I did that for Gail Reebuck, she'd then edit my introduction and make it so much better. I'm just not going to bother. Instead, I'm just going to say, here's Gail Reebuck to talk about the curious incident of the book in the digital age. Sorry if I'm struggling up. I just broke my toe, so um, I'm, uh, I'm suffering here. Now, I knew Nick was going to be a hard act to follow, um, and he is, <laughs> or was. Um, I am going to get back to book publishing, the here and now, because um, when Jax Thomas asked me to speak here, um, she casually suggested that I might address publishing and the author, fine, except she then went on to say, past, present, and future. And Gail, could you do it in 15 minutes? So I've tried to bring some focus to that vast landscape, as you've heard, with the title of the curious incident of the book in the digital age. Curious, because while the incredible revolutions we've lived through in the last 20 years may seem to have changed everything, when you really get down to it, I'm going to argue, nothing has changed at the core of our industry. It's still stories and the people who create those stories, the authors, that underpin everything. It's their imagination that inspires and moves readers, makes publishing much more than just another industry to work in. And to work in publishing, in my view, is not to have a job, but it's actually to have a vocation. Books are the DNA of our civilization, an unbroken line of stories, ideas, and knowledge, which essentially, I will argue, completes our relationship with all of humanity and with ourselves. And yet, the world is changing, and it's changing fast. In 2007, a colleague phoned me from New York to say that a new book had just been recommended to him. He'd immediately stopped at a coffee shop, downloaded the book, and was well into the first chapter by the time he got back to his office. For me, it was a profound moment in which I understood the enormity of the cultural revolution ahead. And my goodness me, that wasn't even 10 years ago. The speed of change has been phenomenal. Now, I started my working life, would you believe, um, learning how to set hot type and hand bind a book, thanks to a very generous employer, children's book packager, who let me do a day release course at the London College of Printing. Three years later, my third job, I was launching a paperback imprint for Paul Hamlin at a time when hardcover publishers still preferred, would you believe, to sell on paperback rights rather than tangle with the brash new world of aggressive marketing that came with them. Now, I so enjoyed that brash new world that after five years, I remortgaged my flat and teamed up with Anthony Cheatham to launch Century, a name we chose by thumping through a book of typefaces from my days at printing college. Now, many of you know the rest of that story. Century merged with Hutchinson, bought Ebree, was acquired by Random House, launched Vintage, acquired Reed Books, which included Secker and Warburg and then Harville. And in 1998, Random House was in turn acquired by Bertelsmann and merged with Transworld. Then came BBC Books and Virgin. And in 2013, the biggest move of all was the foundation of Penguin Random House. Now, looking back on it, it makes the relationships between the ruling families of Game of Thrones seem actually very easy to follow. <laughs> and like them, I have to say, we're still not sure if and when winter is actually coming. But there have been three real seismic shifts in our industry during the time that I've been working. 
The first in the early 1980s was the rise of Waterstones as the first chain of full-range high street bookshops. The second was the end of the netbook agreement in 1995 or thereabouts. And although I had a hand in its demise, it was already doomed in the UK. And yet, I can mourn its passing and reflect on the enlightened versions of it in some European countries where local culture and multiple routes to market are actually valued. The third, of course, was Amazon, with its brilliant forward thinking about the online retailing of books, which led to the biggest revolution of them all, the Kindle and the digital book. Now, you might suppose that the Amazon revolution would have killed the Waterstones revolution, but that's not what happened. Another curious incident. And as is becoming true for many other parts of the media world, the old is simply learning how to coexist with the new. And what better evidence than the news that a new independent bookshop, Libreria, hub for creative entrepreneurs opening in the heart of high-tech East London, is offering bookbinding, hand bookbinding, as one of its attractions. And incidentally, you're not allowed mobile phones on the premises. So let's start thinking about what has changed apart from what hasn't. We rightly celebrate the UK's creative industries, worth some 84 billion, employing almost 2 million people and growing twice as fast as the rest of the economy. 10 billion of that figure is publishing, half of which is book publishing, a 5 billion pound industry dependent on the creativity of authors. But that's only part of it. Three of the top four grossing global film franchises of all time, Lord of the Rings, James Bond and Harry Potter rest on the work of British authors. Films, plays, endless brilliant television series, think the recent Le Carre, animation, even kids' toys and theme parks ultimately depend on the creative ability of storytellers. They ought to be seen as the heroes of the British economy. But here's the paradox. Today, only one in 10 writers can afford to live from writing alone. Just 5% of authors earn 43% of all income from writing, while half of all self-published authors earn less than $500 a year. Now, recently, it's become fashionable to point the finger at publishers for the concerning decline in authors' revenues. But that ignores the complexity of the modern world, the squeezed margins across the whole supply chain, the lack of diversity in ebook distribution, price deflation on the high street and online, and stiff competition from other media for readers' time. The technology that has made it easier than ever to tell a story and get it out into the world cuts both ways. It's made it possible for a handful of authors to hit a global jackpot of unprecedented Himalayan proportions, while at the same time making it so much tougher for many authors to be seen or heard in the vast sea of information in which we now live. But there is no one path to global success. Take James Patterson. The nearest thing we have to a Netflix model for books, a one-man publishing phenomenon whose creativity supports more than 30 projects at any one time and who's probably done more than any other living author to support independent bookstores and also while campaigning for children to fall in love with reading. And he's just announced a new bookshops um, series to appeal to time-poor lapsed readers. Or take Dan Brown, discovered by his editor, Bill Scott Kerr of Transworld, who believed in him enough to support him through three relatively unsuccessful books until The Da Vinci Code. 
Now, virtually no other publisher has benefited from the whole backlist because they had moved on after one or two books and no doubt regretted it ever since. Dan Brown's career is proof once again that publishing can be a long game that depends on the shared vision and determination of writer and editor. And finally, look at E.L. James and Fifty Shades of Grey, picked up by a small ebook publisher from a fan fiction site, acquired in the US by Random House, and then brought to the UK by Century Arrow, which had just six nail-biting weeks to fire up UK readers for a book and an author who at that time no one had ever heard of. They certainly did a good job, and I'll never forget the day that Susan Sandon came into my office to tell me that the UK had just run out of silver ink as the book surged on towards its incredible global sales of over 100 million copies. Three authors with three very different journeys, but a common destination. Massive global success, driven by brilliant marketing and publicity and sales networks, but success that also crucially depended on editors and publishers with real insight, confidence in their own judgment, and often nerves of steel. Much the same process as it has been to develop and grow authors all the time that I've been in this industry. After all, that is what publishers were put on earth to do, to sift, to curate, to nurture the talents and direction of authors, but most of all, to follow their instincts and connect readers with their unimagined future and what they didn't even know that they were looking for. And today our job as publishers is made even easier and infinitely more sophisticated by terabytes of digital research and sophisticated insight tools that enable us to segment audiences by their passions and their literary tastes, to reach readers with the individuality of an email message, and to constantly refresh and repackage the way books and backlists are managed and marketed. Who would have thought that Ladybird Books had the potential for a sudden, albeit slightly subversive, reinvention in the 21st century. I mean, it just takes one brilliantly executed idea. Now, the other contemporary phenomenon we as publishers should have the confidence and the generosity to welcome is the outpouring of creative energy that's been unleashed by self-publishing, the ultimate democratization of storytelling, and by the power of social networks to bring together authors and readers with similar tastes and interests. But that in no way detracts from the fact that the continuing success of long-form reading and the future of the global bestseller are as dependent as ever on the editor and the publisher. Their real purpose and their skill, unchanged, I will argue, by the digital revolution, is still to recognize true originality and to understand how it can best be shaped and packaged to reach and move an audience. Now, of course, global bestsellers have always existed, and their success has been, and will continue to be, as much to do with word-of-mouth recommendation as anything else. In that sense, Tom Standage argues in his very compelling book, Writing on the Wall, that nothing has changed since the 17th century pamphlets were distributed, or when people gathered at the coffee houses of the 18th century, except that rather than a leisurely chat with a friend, our days are more likely to be lived in a growing torrent of conversation and information. Worldwide, more phone calls are now made in a single day than were made in the whole of 1984 and more emails are sent in a day than the whole of 1989. A year in a day is often what it feels like as I personally reach for the pause button. 
And I read the other day that the average American spends more time online in a day than they do either working or sleeping. Reading really has to fight for its space and needs all the help it can get. Now, I've long thought that Professor Charles Handy's analogy of the elephant and the flea applies to the world of modern publishing. The big international company with its warehouses, global reach and sophisticated systems, alongside the agile flea, independent in spirit as well as finance. They need each other, and in many ways, they feed each other. We certainly need both if we are to thrive in the digital world. And we don't need a civil war in which one tries to outflank the other as to which is the most creative. Both contribute to our culture, either through a stable of diverse, talented editors or iconic owner-publishers. They curate the best writers and thinkers, and with the help of an agent, that triumvirate, author, agent, publisher, remain at the core of our creative survival as an industry, while we develop our relationship with the reader in ways that could not have been imagined before. Nor must we allow the digital and physical worlds to regard each other as enemies. We don't know whether the slowdown in the growth of digital books and the resurgence or at least the stabilization of the high street, marks a real sea change in consumer behavior, or is just a temporary plateau for the next wave of digital growth. What matters is that readers are discovering and buying books, whatever the form of delivery. More fundamentally, we don't know how readership itself may change. The interactivity of the digital world may drive us towards a new kind of reader engagement, a blurring of the relationship between reader and writer, as Bob Stein of the Institute for the Future of the Book believes, though I have to say there's precious little evidence of it yet. We are still at the early stages of the relevant neuroscience, and who knows where that might lead us. Research shows that animation on tablets to accompany children's stories can help kids understand the story better and increase their vocabulary. For all that, the killer application for books has yet to be invented, unless the early model for children's publishing proves to be exactly that. Now, illustrated children's publishers, those that are focused on younger readers, have literally pioneered collaborative working in which writer, artist, and often today a TV production team, coder, web designer, work together from the very beginning of a project, the author becoming subsumed into a larger and highly professional creative team along the Pixar lines. But as you move up the age range, once you've reached for your first J.K. Rowling, Suzanne Collins, Philip Pullman, or John Green, I argue you're definitely back in the territory of the single author from whom all further opportunities flow. The fact is, books are different. And this isn't to take a stance in a debate about technologies. It's to make an observation about the way human beings work. Those of you familiar with neuroscientist Marianne Wolfe's remarkable book, Proust and the Squid, will know that she and many others argue that reading electronically has an impact on the brain in a different way from reading the printed page. Skimming and multitasking negatively affect the way the brain responds to text, and over time, if long-form reading declines, it may short-circuit our reading brain, so that although we develop the skills necessary for gathering masses of information, we lose the critical, analytical, transformative reading skills that help to drive our intellectual and emotional development. 
Now, early Norwegian research has shown that reading electronically can result in less recall of the plot of a novel and more confusion following a narrative and multiple characters. The insight here being that the ultimate immersive experience connects better and is more memorable in physical form. But there's no doubt that the transformative power of books can often be seen at its most stark with those who have never read, either because their literacy skills are too poor or because they've never discovered that reading can actually be a pleasure. Research with emergent readers further proves that reading a book for the first time can give people tremendous self-confidence, a sense of well-being, and can help them become more tolerant and accepting of those who are different from themselves, a crucial quality in today's world. Salman Rushdie has written of the way in which, and I quote, books become part of the way we see our lives. We read our lives through them, and their descriptions of the inner and outer worlds become mixed with ours. They become ours. And it's fascinating that, even today, the short story and the novella, as seen with the recent successes of Julian Barnes, Ian McEwan, and Graham Swift, are enjoying a dazzling new lease of life. And yet... The average number of pages in a bestseller has grown by 25% since 1999. We just love living in the world of books, from Donna Tartt to Marlon James to Karl Uwe Knausgaard. But for all the comfort we book lovers may draw from such a statistic, we must not allow ourselves to stop experimenting with new forms of the written and the spoken word, just as we must not allow libraries to close or schools to swing so far towards the focus on STEM subjects that they fail to nurture the creativity and imagination that every child has. Now, we've recently seen a handful of YouTubers write bestsellers with a unique capacity to connect directly with their audience of millions of online followers, which includes, of course, 75% of those under 25. Interestingly, the majority of Zoella, Alfie Day's, Dan and Phil's books were actually sold in physical form, as if the e-phenomenon of vlogging was given substance by physicality. But we also need to look to the online social entrepreneurs like Suli Brakes and acknowledge the talent of Akala, who quotes Shakespeare and hip-hop lyrics to highly educated audience who frankly can't tell the difference between the two. And we need to celebrate the phenomenon of Kate Tempest, George the Poet, and other lesser-known spoken word poets like Franklin Adow or MC Angel, whose hour at Cheltenham Literature Festival fired up an audience that included both school kids and old age pensioners. So while we champion the long form, we should also have the confidence to explore the alchemy that comes from young, diverse writing talent and explore collaborating with coders and technicians. Because here too, it's the insight and the passion of the individual creator, the author, that drives the experience. As we move from a society that values the creation of a unique storehouse of ideas in each individual towards a society in which the emphasis is much more on socially constructed ideas and group approval, we must not allow the uniqueness of the author to degrade into the bleak functionality of a mere content provider. We live in turbulent and confusing times, bombarded with fragmented and often sensationalist packets of information and images. And in response, we naturally crave some way of giving meaning and coherence to it all. We want new and radical ideas that challenge us and give us hope. And at the same time, 
We want stories that engage and move and comfort us. A high-tech, digital, conflict-ridden, multicultural world doesn't render those desires irrelevant. It intensifies them. Back in 2010, at a lunch for authors and journalists in Sydney, Australia, we were heatedly discussing, yes, even then, the threat of increased online activity, such as digital gaming, on young minds. One of the people present, David Malouf, a wonderful writer and a gentle friend, merely said to me, Gail, you worry too much. We all adapt. The author in the book will survive. So, for all the curious incidents I've seen in our industry since my days at the London College of Printing, the most curious, but the least surprising of all, is that the power of the book and the importance of the author haven't actually changed at all. Thank you very much. Thank you.